standard issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 264 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and on Saturday, of my own volition, and having paid for the privilege, I sat in a barrel of ice water. Is this some sort of sporting endeavour, Mick? Or no. in response to a sporting endeavour? Like, what? And by what do you mean, why? Yeah, have you been taken by a new internet craze, Mickey? <laughs> I think it's quite Are an old craze, Are you eating the things you put in washing machines at the same time? Is that a Jack Monroe tip? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, you know those little bags that have like, you know, like plastic, tiny plastic things you put in the washing machine with washing up liquid? Oh, in. yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. The capsules, yeah. Yeah, in America, there was a like one of those internet crazes of eating them. Why would you do that? Oh, that's yeah. very dangerous. <laughs> and uh, you, you're supposed to keep them away from babies so that they don't eat them. Yeah. No, I'm distancing myself from that. Absolutely distancing myself from it. I did. Uh, I got in the barrel of ice water to relax. I also got in a bath of ice water, an especially cooled cube of water. But also in between that, I got in saunas. It's the brilliant Hackney Wick community sauna. It's great. It's really lovely fun. And I did feel very zen by the end of it, which is unusual for me. I'm not a, a, someone with zenergy. That sounds very Hackney Wick. <laughs> it was so Hackney Wick. Also, I wonder if either of you two could describe to me what you think a sauna hat would look like. Like a swimming cap? Interesting. Hannah? A sauna hat? I don't know. I don't know why, I don't know why, but I'm picturing those things that old men wore as like caps at, at bedtime in like, you know, Henry VIII yeah. drama. So Hannah's closest, for sure. If you imagine a sort of soft felt pith helmet, <laughs> like Bill and Ben, <laughs> the flowerpot men. Uh, yeah, right. and so I had one of those on, and I'm going to tell you guys, I looked fucking cute. <laughs> Sat in my little <laughs> barrel of ice water with a hat on. What's it for? My second guess was going to be a fez, which is kind of close. <laughs> yeah, again, not bad. It is because, Jen, it protects your hair in the sauna. And with grey hair, it's very porous and, you know, it gets damaged quite quickly. But also, it keeps you a little bit cooler in the sauna. I'm not sure of the science behind it. It keeps you a little bit cooler in the sauna and a little bit warmer in the ice water. So I actually took it off for the ice water. But it did mean I could withstand the sauna much more than I thought I could. I would have thought that since heat escapes from the top of your head, you should wear it in the ice thing and take it off in there. See, now there's the myth that heat escapes from the top of your head. When you go back to the study where that was revealed as a result, basically they were wearing lots of layers of clothing everywhere else, but not a hat. So of course the heat fucking escapes from their head because they hadn't covered it up. But that's where that theory right. comes from. It somehow works, Hannah. Hang on, hold the phone. Are you saying that we shouldn't wear hats? No, you should wear hats. Like if you want to keep a warm okay. head. But that's not just because heat doesn't escape from anywhere else. It just goes straight out the top of your head. It's because, you know... Here's an interesting fact for you that uh, a unit of um, insulation via cloves is uh, is measured in clo. Clo? Mm-hmm. Clo. Okay. Well, my sauna hat... Don't cut any no of this. Clo. No. It's gold. <laughs> it's fascinating. If anyone is still listening, who am I joined by? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Hannah Dunleavy. And finally, finally... I finished cutting my head. Holds for applause. Yeah. When do you have to start cutting your head again? 
Well, I mean, I did technically finish it last week, but I had to go back to the start yeah. where it started regrowing. But yeah, one of my neighbours, who's uh, he's a builder, doesn't mean he knows his gardening, but nonetheless, it means that when he came over to me and said, excellent job on that hedge, I was strangely yeah. thrilled. I was like, Ooh, that's a good compliment. That's, that's like proper praise. And also thrillingly, he was holding a miniature chihuahua that was wearing a bow tie while we had that conversation. Incredible. I was I was half hoping you were going to say it was wearing a sauna hat, but I'll take bow tie. No, no, it was wearing a bow tie. I actually said to him, can I congratulate you on your comfortableness with your masculinity that you are holding that dog during this conversation? Lovely stuff. I'm Jen Offord and yesterday I reverse parked. Woo! I feel like you should also add the phrase hold for applause because... Mm. Thank you. Can I just tell you something, Jen? You are already a much, much better driver than a lot of people because... (laughs) Don't know about that. Those of us who had to learn to reverse park know how to reverse park. Those who didn't really don't. I know full-grown adults who've been driving for 30 years who can't reverse park a car. Why not? They just weren't taught. It's tricky. They were taught, but they didn't have to pass it. Mm. And then people get a bit, you know... I mean, a lot of people have driveways and parking spaces at work, Mm -hmm. so they never actually have to reverse park. But you're pretty good at it, aren't you, Hannah? I am pretty good at it. I used to drive a camper van, so I'm actually really good at reverse parking. But, yeah. I'm not looking forward to parallel parking. That seems shit. Parallel parking is reverse parking. Hang on. Is reverse parking. Is it the same thing? Yeah. I was in a car park, so I wasn't doing like proper reverse parking. Oh, oh scrub everything yeah, I just said, away. Jen. Jesus. <laughs> We're here under false pretenses. Come back to us when you've parallel parked, Jen, and you can have your praise back. Coming up, I chat to journalist Chloe Hadjimatheou about her Radio 4 series, Burning Sun, which shows a frankly horrifying side of k-pop that's quite dark i don't put trigger warnings on but oh it's all right hannah because i'm just chatting about domestic homicide so you know to lighten it up (laughs) okay they're great (laughs) so yeah carol fisher tells me about new podcast the girlfriends a true crime story about the murder of gail katz by her husband robert berenbaum who got away with it for 15 years and dated a lot of women in the meantime and yeah carol was one of those women In Jenny Off the Blocks, our World Cup runneth over as we look ahead to the Netball World Cup, which starts on Friday, and in Rated or Dated, a lamentable lack of dancing horses as we watch 1978's International Velvet. There's loads of fucking dancing horses. No, there isn't. It's the worst dressage ever captured on film. (laughs) But first, by elections, bye bye Bluebird, and by passing FOIs, it's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cue Sting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, the home of nuance. Oh, wow. I've been wondering where that was. It's been here the whole time. Yeah. For example, it's perfectly possible to say stopping women taking newborn babies to hospital is bad. But equally, so is kicking protesters in the head. I agree with both of those statements. Just to be clear, it wasn't the woman who was trying to take the baby to the hospital. Just up oil had been very busy the last week. And yeah, there's been some footage of some people taking some pretty nasty... Oh, I think I sent it to you actually, didn't I? The one that I said that reminded me of the guilty remnant when they're all just standing there yes. getting beaten up. Yeah, not smoking. Yeah. Anyway, Mickey, question. Do you love a by-election? 
not even going to stop for an answer <laughs> because obviously it's yes because who doesn't love a by-election <laughs> and also if it's no the bad news is that this is going to take ages because last week we had three of them braced i'm braced let's start with selby and ainsty up in yorkshire where 25 year old keir mather 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 overturned a huge Tory majority to take the seat vacated by Nigel Adams, who you may or may not remember resigned because Boris Johnson and Nadine Dorries resigned, which is the worst reason to do anything. (laughs) Although making the same decisions as Boris for a week is a great idea for a blog. I think it is. Terrible idea for a marriage. (laughs) It's a great idea for a blog. I feel like you'd end up with some baggage that lasted you for however long kids stay at home, though, these days. (laughs) (laughs) Critics, including Johnny Mercer, sigh, questioned whether the new baby of the house was sufficiently experienced for his new role. And he mentioned the in-betweeners because he's obviously (laughs) a really considered and thoughtful man. Zeitgeist. But quick with the rebuttal came one Mrs. Jill Mother. Sorry, Mather. Sorry, Mather. 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 I don't fucking know. Anyway, she defended her son. I mean, there is a way to prove you put your big boy pants on. (laughs) But that ain't it. Mummy. (laughs) Quickly moving on to Somerton and Frome down in Somerset, where the Tories lost another seat. Hooray! Hooray! This time to Sarah Dyke of the Lib Dems. She won by a pretty comfortable margin. This was the seat vacated by David Warburton. And if you don't know who he is, allow me to summarise with just one line from a BBC news piece about him. Quote, he admitted drug taking, but denies any sexual misconduct. So... Was it three losses out of three for the Conservatives? Sadly not. Which, which was a little surprising given the amount of competition the Tory candidate had for votes because Uxbridge and South Ryslip's choice was fringe as fuck. <laughs> and also surprising because the country's fucked and it's largely their fault. Definitely near their doorstep, if not right on it. <laughs> The seat vacated by former PM Boris Johnson was won by Steve Tuckwell with Labour around 500 votes behind. Shall we have a quick look at who else was on the ballot? Yes, please. Well, there was the gloriously named Blaise Maxime Pasquale Bakish. It sounds like you could eat them with a salad. (laughs) (laughs) Who stood for the Lib Dems. I did have a look to see what the Lib Dems campaign looked like and couldn't find much, which may explain its 526 votes. Maybe add it to the list of things that have gone wrong, <laughs> lads, which I appreciate is a very long list. Do you think they were doing the pamphlets and the leaflets and they just put their name on it and then there wasn't really room for anything else? <laughs> Piers Corbyn oh. also stood for the Let London Live party, which certainly seems like a worthy (laughs) idea. Just let London live, guys. Even if I'm sure it couldn't be more crackpot if it was smoking crack and pot. (laughs) Corbyn is very much the Conor Roy of this election, and I don't mean he's trading in on his name. I mean that he got virtually no votes, and I hope that he never, ever gets near power. Do you think he's going to end up in one of the Stonians? (laughs) 
<laughs> that comparison is actually unfair on Conor Roy. <laughs> Fair enough. There were a whole bunch of independents, one known as 77 Joseph, <laughs> who I'll admit to you all here now. I was too afraid to Google. I think you've made the right decision. <laughs> there were two separate candidates standing on a platform of getting rid of the ULES, presumably for variety. <laughs> and let's not forget the three joke candidates, Count Bimface, the monster raving loony guy and howling Lord Hope. No, wait a minute. He is the monster raving loony guy. Who am I thinking of? Anyway, Lawrence Fox of the Reclaim <laughs> Party picked up 714 votes, which granted is more than the Lib Dems putting him in fourth. I mean, I'm sure he thinks he's a new force to be reckoned with, but fourth place in one seat does not a revolution make. One last thing before I stop all this bloody talking. What's going on with Nadine Doris's seat? Shouldn't there be a by-election in Luton happening soon? Oh, yeah. Well, you say that, and you'd be right to, but it turns out that Nadine Doris hasn't handed her <laughs> notice in as such. If you imagine Doris's career to be a very long night with someone you really don't like who is drinking heavily, <laughs> we're now at the stage where she's crying and shouting, I'm leaving, while pouring herself another drink. Oh, wow. Yeah. Long, dark night of the soul spent in the toilets, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Two out of three, though. Now then, does X mark the spot or is it the final kiss of death for Twitter? That's right, the Muskman has announced there's a new logo in town. A super cool, don't I look cool, generic as the new iconic, I'm very cool, X. <laughs> it's bye-bye little Larry Bluebird, and if angry tweets are to be believed, swathes of Twitter users. Probably the same Twitter users who have absolutely already left for threads. <laughs> yeah. Who were the same Twitter users who had absolutely already left for Mastodon. <laughs> who were the same Twitter users who, even before the Elon supremacy, were absolutely going to start sending their 180-word thoughts via carrier pigeon. <laughs> so, yeah, I am curious as to whether the death of Twitter has once again been greatly exaggerated. Because what else is there that actually provides what Twitter provides? Which is all the opinions from everyone, including your dearest pals and people you wish had never been taught to type. If opinions are like arseholes, Twitter is the gaping poop shoot we all willingly gather around with our mouths wide open. Mm -hmm. Now, I've seen a lot of people I follow on Twitter and indeed on Instagram alerting me and their other followers, I'm not special, of their new Threads account. And so far, I've resisted. Am I too lazy to remember another fucking password? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes, I am. But also, while I enjoy Instagram's basic vibes and have curated myself a joyful timeline... And I still have a presence on Facebook, although all I really do is look at what other people have posted rather than post myself. I'm wary of its owner, Meta, which is also the owner of new spangly Global Square threads. Meta, a.k.a. sentient hemorrhoids cushion, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> a man so keen to harvest our energy, he probably lists Colin Robinson as his hero. <laughs> Actually, he probably lists Mark Zuckerberg as his hero, doesn't he? It feels even more pressing not to help Meta when, given how Facebook royally fucked democracy in the arse in the 2016 US presidential elections, the next US presidential election fast approaches, with former POTUS and convicted sexual abuser Donald Trump once more the Republican frontrunner. I cannot express how depressing that is to say out loud. 
<laughs> yeah. And sure, I've heard people extolling how Threads is Twitter, but nice. But I've got to be honest, I'm not sure I need that on social media. Don't fucking need that, no. <laughs> I've got actual friends who are really nice. And I'm lucky enough to have populated my own little world of lovely with said friends. But that's not how the real bigger world works. We disagree, we debate, we hopefully find middle ground and then we move forward. That's the theory anyway. And for all the toxicity on Twitter, and there is a metric fuckton for sure... There are also moments when people do think about a different opinion that's been put in front of them, and it does make them think what they thought was gospel. Rare as it seems to be, we need that, rather than what the excellent Ian Leslie terms toxic agreement. Mm-hmm. And so in the face of all that, you will still find me at Mixter Noonan and us at Standard Issue UK on Twitter, even though, yes, now its logo does make it look like a particularly seedy lap dancing club under Leeds' dark arches. <laughs> Feel free to tuck a tenor in my whale tail while telling me I'm wrong about everything. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Mick. The logo looks crap. Yeah. Elon Musk is a terrible human being and he's probably doing this to spite someone or to just, <laughs> Petty. you know, yeah. just because he's got a thing about exes. I he don't know. He does have a thing about exes. I think... Twitter is you live by the sword, you die by the sword on there. And I fortunately managed to exist on there. The fact that nobody sees my tweets anymore, I don't know why. Despite the fact uh-huh. I've got followers, I still get like 45 people have seen this. But being on it and reading what other people have to say will never, ever not be interesting to me. Absolutely. It's fascinating. You said this to me last week. You were just like, there's a lot of people talking about threads on Twitter. Why aren't they talking about, on th- why aren't they talking about it on threads? Yeah, yeah. Mickey, would you forego a good news story if I told you about the theft of 200,000 cream eggs? Are those cream eggs now in my cupboards? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that would be lovely. But go on then, even though I know they're not. This is like some sort of ITV show from my childhood where uh, we go, hello, Mickey, now if you open your cupboard, you'll see I filled it with 200,000 cream eggs. Why have you been in my house? I'm a child. <laughs> Anyway, last week, a man called Joby Paul was jailed for stealing £31,000 worth of those yummy Cabris egg. Should have said that, street value, £31,000. <laughs> when he broke into an industrial unit in Telford in February and made off with the haul in a stolen lorry cab. So, first question, did he know that was what he was going <laughs> to get when he broke in? What if he wanted Yorkies? Sorry. Second question, how do you go about offloading 200,000 cream eggs? Do you have to have a buyer lined up? In which case, let's go back to question one. Or do you just think, yeah, fuck it, I'm pretty sure I can shift 200,000 chocolate eggs. How hard can it be? Or maybe he was just going to stockpile. I don't know, how long would 200,000 cream eggs last? A few months at least. Shortly after his arrest, Western Mersey Police described the incident in a series of tweets as a, quote, extravagant theft, and added, West Mercia Police has saved Easter for cream egg fans. Christ, I wish the police would stop tweeting. I mean, I wish they'd stop tweeting, but I would take the terrible puns if they at least did something about, you know, crime within the police. I don't know, it just feels like I'd... Yeah. Yeah. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where the sexism affects all the taxpayers. We women can't hog it all. You've got to share the good stuff round. 
<laughs> and so, thank you, Met Police. Oh, sorry, I read that wrong. So, fuck you, Met Police. <laughs> I mean, for so many reasons. So many reasons! But I am specifically talking about the forces treatment of women and girls. And by that, for this story's purposes, I mean the appalling, insulting investigating performance around rape and serious sexual assault by the Met Police and the appalling level of rape and serious sexual assault committed by members of the Met Police. (sighs) Anyway, that's old as well as ongoing news and indeed the subject of a recent report helmed by Baroness Louise Casey on the standard of behaviour and the internal culture of the Met. Now, when Police Commissioner Mark Rowley stepped into Cressida Dick's shoes in 2022, he promised a new era of transparency. And so it's, you know, a bit of a joke, albeit a very unfunny one, that when the Times requested a copy of the force's so-called problem profile on violence against women and girls, the force refused to provide the documents and also refused to provide any information before the Information Commissioner, which is the government's independent FOI regulator. Hang on, it's one of those jokes with another punchline. Because not only did the force refuse, but it has since instructed external lawyers to take the commissioner to court to block the release of documents that could highlight failures to protect women and girls, transparent as mud, and a big books bill for us taxpayers. That's right, the Met is spending taxpayers' money to prevent the taxpayers from learning about how many bad apples they kept employed using taxpayers' money. Harriet Bland, a solicitor at the Centre for Women's Justice, said, Confidence in policing among survivors of violence against women and girls is now at an all-time low. She didn't stop to say, no shit, Sherlock, but I mean, I imagine she was thinking (laughs) it very loudly. It is therefore extremely disappointing to hear that the Met is using taxpayers' money to fight the release of a document analysing the scale of the problem. A spokeswoman for the Metropolitan Police declined to comment to Times reporters citing live legal proceedings. Yeah, that's... They did save all those cream eggs though, Hannah. (laughs) The interesting thing here is that there's got to be a tip over point where the reputational damage of not handing it over is worse than the reputational damage of what is in it. And I can't believe we're not at that point now. What the fuck's in it? Yeah, if they're well, fighting it, this it, hard. It does feel like they're hiding something, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like they're hiding far something, be it for me. <laughs> Maybe not, because we are, as previously discussed, the home of nuance. So, you know. <laughs> Hi, Hannah here. I'm joined by Chloe Hajimatheu, presenter and co-creator of a Radio 4 series now available on BBC Sounds burning sun thank you so much for joining me chloe thanks for having me i made myself absolutely furious or maybe more correctly you made me absolutely furious last weekend while i was doing my housework listening to your podcast i think my kitchen floor has never been so clean i was taking out all of my rage (laughs) and it's really interesting i had a couple of work experience people children yeah they are children last week and i was actually talking to them about k-pop Because they've got a lot of friends who are really into K-pop, predominantly girls, but also boys that are into sort of the wider Korean Mm. culture, because obviously Parasite and Squid Games. And I said to them, but South Korea's got a real misogyny problem, so I wonder why, you know, girls are drawn to that culture. And they said, has it? And I was like, oh my God, yeah. And I started telling them, because we've covered it on the podcast before, about the tiny, tiny spy cameras that are everywhere in South Korea and uh, in women's toilets. 
they were absolutely mind blown about that. And I thought, I really, really wish there was something I could refer them to to learn more. And then literally an email from Rosie just dropped saying, did I want to talk to you about this? And now so, you've got it. Yeah, yeah. brilliant, brilliant <laughs> job. Perhaps we could maybe start with that question of what do you think it is about South Korean culture and about K-pop that so many young girls all around the world are drawn to? I have to admit, before I approached this whole thing, I was never a huge K-pop fan. I didn't know very much about it. And I think the first thing to say for oldies like us that don't really get it is that the allure of K-pop, it's not just a music genre. It's most people who consume it, consume it via YouTube. So it's very visual as well. The routines, it's about the look. It's, I think, if you have, you know, I don't know because I'm not, I'm not one of the fans, but if I had to hazard a guess, the world today, there's a lot of negativity out there. We're being fed negative news stories all the time. And K-pop is just this really positive, upbeat, happy, energetic music genre Mm. and it really kind of it's uplifting and the songs are really catchy and fun and you know I don't don't speak Korean and they're they're earworms they they get in my head and I hear them over and over again so I'm hazarding a guess that's it and also the dance routines are just incredible you've got like sometimes six sometimes ten dancers all on the stage together or in a studio being filmed for a music video and their routines are so exact and so meticulous it's almost like watching a piece of machinery as they all move in sync doing these incredibly difficult moves and you'll find kids all around the world replicating that and you know it's a positive thing they're engaged in something positive I think they're listening to music they're moving their bodies it's a good thing as far as I can see and so there is this really positive happy uplifting upbeat side to k-pop and 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 I get why people are attracted to that yeah, I mean, even when I was a teenager, I think I liked my pot stars slightly darker, slightly more drug-addled. Edgier, drug-addled. Bit edgier. Bit edgier. But the yeah. truth is, K-pop is edgy, and that's what we're here to talk about. There is a really, really dark underbelly. And probably the best place to start, without wanting to put too many spoilers, honestly, I didn't know the half of it. Can we talk about The Burning Sun, the nightclub? Perhaps mm. that would be what Burning Sun is and, and what happened there. Burning Sun was a massive nightclub, probably one of the best known and most successful nightclubs in Seoul, South Korea's capital city. There's an area called Gangnam, which might ring a bell from Gangnam Style, a really, really popular K-pop song. One of the first ones, actually, that that made K-pop global. So Gangnam is a district, quite a large district in Seoul, and there's one part of it that's a nightlife district in the evenings and burning sun was like a really high class upmarket venue and what made it even more attractive than other venues was that there was a famous k-pop star attached to it so sung lee was a member of the band big bang which was one of the first k-pop bands to make it onto the global stage so they were one of the first bands that went outside korea but also outside asia and started hitting the markets in the States and in Europe. And they were massive. And Sung Lee was a huge, huge celebrity in Korea, massive in Korea, but also really well known around the world, hugely popular with K-pop fans everywhere. And so he also on the side of his music, he was engaged in lots of business ventures. He had a noodle chain, 
various other businesses, including opening this nightclub. And part of it was that he was really into DJing. So he, you know, he said he wanted to open a nightclub so he'd have somewhere to DJ. He was a co-owner with lots of friends. It was just packed every night. It was raking in the money. I actually got to see it, this nightclub, not in action, because by the time I got onto the story and got into Korea, it had closed down already. But I got to walk around the building as it was being demolished. It was under this massively posh upmarket hotel, the Meridian Hotel in the centre of town. And you'd go through this massive arch and then down a staircase, a narrow staircase that was lined with these red lights. So it looked like you were walking through a sun. And you'd go down, down, down deep into this basement. And then there'd be these narrow corridors where you'd loop through. I mean, it was a really cool place. And then there would have been this massive dance floor with a DJ booth and private rooms. And these private rooms, if you were a rich customer, you could pay to have access to one of these VIP rooms. And so what transpired was at the end of 2018, a customer got thrown out of the club and he got beaten up by some of the club staff outside the venue. And he blogged about this and it got picked up by, the story got picked up by one of Korea's major news networks and they began investigating it. And in looking into his story, they began digging into the club a bit further. And their particular interest was that this massive celebrity was also attached to the club. And stories began emerging. People started talking, members of staff, customers, female customers at the club, and also male customers at the club. And the story began emerging of this culture, really widespread culture, of women being drugged inside the club. This is what the allegations were, that women were being drugged with date rape drugs. GHB is a drug that is is basically an anaesthetic, sometimes used recreationally, but most commonly used as a date rape drug because it doesn't stay in your system. And if you take it, you basically lose your memory and sometimes lose consciousness and lose your inhibitions. So it's an effective date rape drug. Mm. The allegations were that this was being used very, very often inside the club. I spoke to club employees who were working there who said every night they were seeing women who were drugged and who were being taken out of the club by customers or taken into VIP rooms. They were on WhatsApp groups. So the club employees had, you know, the equivalent of WhatsApp groups, which is an app called Kakao Chat in Korea that they use. And in these groups... Employees of the club would be sharing videos of girls that were being raped on the premises. They would sometimes also, I I saw videos of girls being sexually abused and these videos were being sent out to customers trying to entice them into the club saying, come in tonight and I'll have a girl ready for you. I know this already. And it still horrifies me. I'm angry now. Yeah. The thing that I found absolutely shocking about this. So just to say that only one person was ever prosecuted for any of this. So when I'm talking about this, we're talking about allegations here. I've seen this stuff. I've seen the allegations. I've seen the videos. I've seen videos where there is abuse of girls going on. But obviously, the police didn't prosecute these cases. So I can't say who were the perpetrators. One, One employee of the club was prosecuted for filming an abuse scene. The employees of the club would sometimes, the allegation is that they would sometimes provide the drugs. This is what the employees I spoke to said. They would provide the drugs to the customers. Other times they would film the customers engaging in abuse and rape as a kind of memento for the high paying customer. And the idea being that the more the customers had a good time at the club, the more likely they would be to come back again. And the idea of filming it is, and I tried to understand this, was that they were saying, well, in Korea, we really have a culture of photographing all the things that we do. 
to show our friends. And so filming you having sex with a girl, whether or not she's conscious, is like, oh, look at the great time I had at the club. I'm just going to film it to remember it and show my friends. It's so unbelievably shocking. I was thinking when I was listening, in what sort of culture does this thrive? And then I saw, which is another part of the story, or then I heard some of the messages that some other K-pop stars had been sending to each other about things that they've been up to. And one of these messages just, I think, sums absolutely everything up. And it's one of them sends a message to the group talking about a girl who passed out while in their company. We don't know why. She may have been drugged. doesn't say in the message. And they say in the message, she gave herself a concussion. And that, to me, sums up everything. She did it herself. She gave herself a concussion. There's something so misogynistic in the way that women are spoken about. How do you do this? How do you look at stuff like that? <laughs> look after your own sanity. Yeah, I mean, it's hard. I have to say, I had to watch a few of these videos and photos and various other things. And it's horrible. It's really horrible. And it really stays with you. And some of these girls looked incredibly young. I don't, I don't know who they are. And I don't know how old they were. At the time that this was going on, the age of consent in Korea was 13, which is pretty shocking. It's changed since then. It's, it's much older now. But at that time, they would have had to have been 12 to be under the age limit for sex. But the simple fact is that lots of these women or girls did, did not look conscious while they were having these videos taken of them without their permission. So there, there's various things, right? There's, first of all, the fact that women were being filmed during sex without consent, whether or not they were, were engaging in sex knowingly and willingly. And secondly, some of them were not conscious. And in this case, this, this particular woman was um, a friend of these K-pop stars that they'd invited to a hotel room. And she said when she got there, she'd had a couple of drinks, but, you know, she could handle her alcohol level, but she suddenly woke up and she had no memory of the evening and she was naked and she was saying what's happened here what what's gone on and they were joking and laughing at her and one of them jumped on top of her and started dry humping her and I mean really really disrespectful and horrible and she was really confused but she didn't really know what to say because she didn't know what had happened and then years later she found out because and this is the crazy thing about this whole story Hannah is that we wouldn't know the half of this if it hadn't been for the fact that a Korean celebrity, one of these guys, a pop star, his mobile phone was accessed by somebody who became a whistleblower. So this person got hold of the phone, saw what was on it, saw the content. And the content was these group messages, which is the equivalent of a WhatsApp group in an app called Kakao, where lots of celebrities, male celebrities were chatting. They were sharing photos and videos of women and speaking of them in the most horrifically derogatory terms of women that they'd had sex with, some of whom weren't conscious. And basically it was a one-upmanship. Look what I've done. Look what I could get. What have you got? Oh, yeah, this is what I did to her. And joking about the fact that they weren't conscious in many cases. Like this woman, this woman wasn't conscious and they had recorded her while she was unconscious. It's got to be about more than sex, doesn't it? Because if it was just about sex, I don't think these men would have to go very far to find young girls that would willingly sleep with them. That's what's right. crazy about it, right? So there's something else anyone. going on, isn't there? So here's something interesting that didn't make it into the podcast, which was that I, I visited a rehabilitation centre. So the Korean government has 
has really recognised that this is a problem. There is a problem with sexual offences in Korea and they're trying to tackle it in lots of different ways. And one of the ways that they're trying to tackle it is they have a rehabilitation course that anybody who is convicted of a sexual offence has to attend. And these K-pop stars who were eventually convicted would have had to undergo this course in prison. And I spoke to the woman who was one of the people who'd set the course up and was also delivering it. And I was trying to understand. And she said, you know, a lot of it is about power and feeling that you have power over other people and control. And I think that in lots of ways... Young Korean men don't feel that they have power over their lives. There are lots of things that feel unfair. And young Korean men that I spoke to were talking about studying incredibly hard, finishing university. And and we're talking about from a very young age, having crammer schools in the evenings, not really having much of a childhood and working incredibly hard and being promised a reward at the end of it, which is, you know, you will get a good job, you'll have social status, you'll find a wonderful girlfriend and a wife. And sometimes those things don't happen. You know, they do everything they're supposed to and they don't get the rewards at the end of it. They have a very long working week in South Korea as well. They have a very long working week. The government has, again... Um, I made a separate documentary about this, but the the government has tried to tackle this by cutting down the working hours in the week and saying to big companies, you should turn off all computers at six o'clock. And then the employees realise that you can turn off the computer and then reboot it and continue working. So it doesn't work. There is just a culture where you're expected to work far, far longer hours and then socialise with people from work deep into the night. I mean, none of this is an excuse, obviously. Now, feminism seems, at first glance, in relatively good shape in South Korea because there is a kickback. Obviously, we've seen women marching on a number of occasions about a number of things. But the kickback against that has also been huge. So you chatted to some men who told you that they thought the reason all of this was happening was because of feminism, which actually made me laugh. It was such a ridiculous response. But also, again, a massively depressing response. When I played back the recording, this was an interview that I did with two employees from the nightclub where there were so many allegations of women being drugged and abused. Having done this really long interview where they detailed in horrific detail about things that they they said that they'd seen at the club and the the general culture at the club. And it's important to say they said they said to me at one point, why is this a story? Because this is happening in loads of clubs in Korea and it's still going on. So I don't understand why this is that interesting. They couldn't get it. And so having conducted this really long interview, at the end of it, I asked a question which made, when I played this to my colleagues, um, some of them really laughed at this. I said, "Um, do you think Korea has a problem with misogyny? And they were like, duh. Uh, But these guys, (laughs) these guys' response to this was, well, I don't think it's a problem with misogyny. I think it's a problem with feminism that Korea has. There are these militant feminists and they're responsible for an increase in misogyny in Korea. I didn't even know what to say when they said this. I wasn't sure how to piece that together in my head. But I later learned that there is this movement in Korea, this um, anti-feminist movement, where lots and lots of the ills in the country are being blamed on women and in particular on feminists. So there are young men who feel that their jobs are being stolen by women that the government's programmes to try and make Korea more inclusive, have more women in positions in politics, in big companies, that all of this positive discrimination is hurting men. 
And so they see feminism not so much as a movement for women, as a movement against men. men. And they see it as a personal affront and attack on them. You get a lot of that here as well. And that, that, I suppose, is my last question. This is a Korean problem, but it's not exclusively a Korean problem. Young men growing up in a sort of, let's call it post-Me Too world, technology is advancing. Although in a lot of ways, this specific situation is unique to Korea. I've got friends who've been filmed without their permission. And they're not 16-year-old girls. They're 30 and 40-year-old women revenge porn it's everywhere it is everywhere and you know i have to say so i had this incredible korean production team that worked with me on this obviously i don't speak korean i don't know that much about the culture so i was totally dependent on these fantastic korean producers that that were helping me through navigate this and and most of them were women on the production team and i i said to them you know why is this happening and they said i don't know if you find out can you let us know (laughs) they didn't really get it either but Technology is developing so fast and so rapidly. And in Korea, I spent some time with a guy who detects spy cameras. And he's called in by businesses and individuals who are worried about spy cameras uh, in their businesses, in toilets, in their homes. And he showed me what spy cameras look like these days in Korea. And they're invisible. Like, you can't find them. He would give me, for example, a mirror And I wouldn't be able to see the spy camera in it or a box of tissues or a shampoo bottle or a plug that fits in the socket. It's just amazing how these things have become virtually invisible. Mm. And I mean, in this particular case, in the Burning Sun story and the Cacao Chat scandal, we're talking about people filming women without consent on their mobile phones. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, you know, in lots of ways, an old fashioned way of going mm-hmm. about yeah. it. But there is this spy cam culture in Korea where, you know, you have a you have a section of the, the Seoul Metropolitan Police Force that is just devoted to rooting out spy cameras in metro public toilets in the metro stations. We just don't know where this technology is going. Uh, There is now a problem also with revenge porn where deep fake revenge porn, where Mm. you get the pornographic images and they morph this woman's face on it and then that goes viral. We just have no idea where this is going and what's going to come next. And it is happening here. It's happening in the UK. It's just on a much smaller scale. So it kind of goes under the radar. Yeah. I remember when we talked about the the cameras back on the podcast, I mean, that this was pre-pandemic. I think it was probably when they had the march to try and do something about it. I saw interviews with girls saying that they've so readily accepted that they're going to be filmed that when they go in and use a public toilet, they cover their face because it's easier to just know that you're going to get filmed, but nobody's going to know it's you. Which is such an incredibly depressing statement. That's the thing is that it's not just the act, it's the paranoia. Yeah. So in a way, all women are affected because it's the idea of it that's like, and it happened to me. You know, I was there and at some point I was using a toilet in a metro station and I became really paranoid. I could see this thing on the wall and I came out of the toilet and ran to my producer and said, can you come and check this? What is this? Is it a spy camera? She said, no, it's not a spy. But, you know, I was suddenly imagining the headlines, you know, BBC reporter makes series about secret filming. Yeah. Here's a video of her on the toilet doing a wee. I mean, yeah. it's kind of crazy. <laughs> it, it really gets to you after a while. This has been... Excellent, Chloe. I would advise that everyone listens to Burning Sun. What are you doing next? Is there anything else for me to look forward to? I've got several things in the pipeline that I'm not quite ready to talk about. I've left the BBC now. 
And so I'm putting my net wider, but watch this space is all I'll say. Excellent. If you're interested in a series I did previously, it's on the BBC Sounds feed, which is called Intrigue. And that is about disinformation around the Syrian war and about the white helmets, the people who dig people out of rubble in Syria. Lots of people claim that they're fake and that all their videos showing them digging people out of the rubble have been staged. Oh, God, that's a whole nother level of depressing about the internet, (laughs) isn't it? Chloe, are you on social media? Can people find you and give you a follow? Yes, I'm at Chloe Hadge on Twitter. Find me there. My DMs are open. If you get a chance to listen and you want to send me a message about what you thought of it, I'd love to hear from you. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time, Chloe. Thanks for having me, Hannah. Hello, I'm joined on the Zoom by Carol Fisher, narrator of new true crime podcast, The Girlfriends. Now, Carol, you start each episode of The Girlfriends with a list of content warnings, and one of them is always for swearing. So welcome to Standard Issue, where having the mouth of a sailor is positively encouraged. I am right at home. So, Mickey, thank you for having me on here and to know that I can not have to edit my language is a gift. So thank you. You are very welcome. Carol, tell us about The Girlfriends. What's the story? Oh, my gosh. It's been an amazing journey. It's a story about sisterhood. It's a story about women coming together because we're stronger together than we are as individuals. And, you know, it really has become a call to action. Um, I really believe it's become a call to action to raise awareness on a very important topic of domestic violence. Uh And this was a, a way for us to honor Gail, but also to help other women. And I just have to do a shout out to Anna Sinfield, the the producer. She's an amazing woman that got us all together. And she really saw a larger vision, a larger purpose on how we could come together and partner with No More, which is a leading um, organization, global organization that focuses on domestic violence issues. The Girlfriends is billed as a true crime podcast, and that crime is the murder of Gail Katz Berenbaum by her husband, Robert, or Bob Berenbaum, in Manhattan in 1985. But despite being investigated at the time, he got away with it. And in fact, he got away with it for 15 years, which gave him plenty of time to move to Las Vegas and date a lot of women, including you, Carol. That is the gist of the story. Yeah. How did it become a podcast? Well, I think that Anna and her team looked into this and they said, you know, what can we do to help other women? And what can we do to make sure that Gail's journey in her life had purpose and had meaning? And so that's how Anna reached out to me and she was talking to lots of women that had participated in what we call the club. And uh, we testified and we stood up for what was right along the way as it became apparent that Bob more than likely was a murderer. And of course, we know today he is. Yeah. So that's a little bit of the journey. I've never been a podcaster before. I hadn't even listened to a freaking podcast before, (laughs) Mickey. And I'm happy to say that I, I pulled it off, but with a lot of coaching. A little bit too modest there. You're an absolute natural. And uh, listeners, I'll be getting some tips off Carol off air. Thank you very much. You're so sweet. At the heart of the story is a woman murdered by her husband and still grieving friends and family. 
And I really love that the girlfriends put Gail front and centre. So for our listeners, can you tell us what was Gail Capps like? Well, I've got to tell you, I've I've come to know Gail while we've created this podcast. And it's been an amazing opportunity to get to know a woman who was very similar to me. You know, we both have um, overbearing Jewish mothers. We both had a rebellious streak. We both were just incredibly boy crazy. And she was fiercely independent and fun and just a, a wonderful woman, a great friend, a wonderful sister, and a terrific daughter. Uh, so I feel just this sense of responsibility to be her voice today. You dated Bob Berenbaum in Vegas in the 1990s. And I have listened very luckily to four episodes of the podcast, so I sort of know this. But just for the listeners, I'd like to hear a bit about your relationship with him and the tale he spun around Gail, in inverted commas, going missing, because I think it perfectly encapsulates how easily we believe someone and ignore red flags when we really want to believe someone. He basically personified too good to be true, didn't he? Yeah, you know, he looked, we all say he looked great on paper, right? And he was Jewish and, well, he is Jewish and was a plastic surgeon. And oh my gosh, you know, that's like a dream come true. You get some free work done eventually on your face. <laughs> and, you know, he spoke five languages and he was a gourmet chef and, and he had his own plane. And so on paper, he looked so good. This was a man who was just a master manipulator. Uh, he was a man that came on very strong with women, and I can speak for myself, came on very strong with almost this sense of, of ownership of me. And I went hook, line, and sinker because I was a woman who was a single mom at the time, and I um, was looking to be saved. And, uh, you know, and, and I think many of us uh, look for, you know, that knight in shining armor. And so Bob was that for me. Or... He really wasn't that makey. I wanted him to be that. Uh And so I convinced myself that that's who he was. But I think I strayed from your question. So go back there. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm ranting and and I'll go on and on. So I just wondered what the warning signs were for you, because you actually came right out and asked him if he'd murdered Gail, which must feel mad to you now, right? Yeah, let let me talk to you about that. I've had a lot of uh, personal growth during this journey. I think more <laughs> so today uh, doing the podcast than I did back then when I was dating him. So here I am on my first date with Bob and he's been charming on the phone up, up until this date and charming at the date and opens my car door and, and the whole bit, right? So he's behaving as, as quite the gentleman and he's a good looking guy. And, you know, so we're having an exchange over dinner about, look, you know, we're in our 30s and late 30s and, you know, what's your baggage? I've got some. And he's very hesitant to talk about his previous life and experiences. And so I say to him, well, what'd you do, murder your wife? Now, when I look back at that, I think that was my intuition. And I think that was me being very intuitive, saying there's something wrong. There's a red flag here. And don't we all see red flags and experience those, but we want to ignore them? Uh I ignored it. And um, he had an elaborate story after he turned white as a ghost from my question um, and, and fell silent for a while. He had a great comeback and kind of brought me into this web of 
feeling sorry for him. Poor Bob. He was accused of murdering his wife. And and can you imagine how horrible that was? And I wanted to believe him. And I did believe him for a very long time. And also, he murdered Gail in 1985. And you were dating him in the 1990s. And we kind of, even though we see it disproven time and time again, we kind of believe that bad people will be brought to justice. They will be caught. So the fact that he is walking among you and your friends and dating you means that maybe that red flag is probably not a red flag. Yeah, I so agree. I mean, and, you know, and I look back and I think, my my goodness, the justice system failed not just Gail. It failed all of us. I mean, what the hell, Mickey? We all of us were dating this man and didn't know, you know, could we have been warned that this was a serious issue? There were people, including you know, people of uh, uh, prominent positions in law enforcement that knew he was guilty. Now, I don't know how you warn women. I'm not here to solve that problem per se, but I'm here to say that this is a problem that um, if someone is an abuser, how do we find out? And yeah, to your point, a big lapse of time from the accusation to the time that he was convicted. And he dated a lot of women during that time. So when you were dating Bob, what was it that made you get the hell out of Dodge? Oh, my God. Well, look, you know, my intuition's strong. And although I wanted to believe what I wanted to believe, it was becoming clear that this man was a real problem and had some deep, dark secrets. And he had a temper. And my greatest example of that temper turned towards me was when I, I... dropped I was emptying his dishwasher and dropped a glass and he got really freaking pissed he was so angry and I I can I go back there to that time in his kitchen I can remember myself standing there and the look that he had of you know this broken glass which was a mistake don't we all just drop dishes once in a while yeah unfortunately and he was just so angry and irate and I remember thinking this is not where I should be. This is not where I should be. Now, I was in a, and continue to be a, a very a strong personality with an independent streak. And so my reaction to that was like, what the fuck? What do you mean I dropped your glass? Like, give me a break. And he said, you know, it was an $8 glass and I proceeded to get $8 out of my wallet and literally throw it over to him, you know, with a great independent streak. Now, I must say, looking back, that probably wasn't my wisest decision because I could have been Gail and he could have hurt me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a big question, but how did it feel when you started to realize that actually, yeah, your your ex is a murderer? Oh, gosh. Well, the denial, um, and I think um, many women experience this, denial is real. And so I believed in my mind, I didn't want to come to grip with the truth up until he was convicted. And even when he was convicted, I believe that I'm sure it was an accident. Really? Yeah. I'm quite certain that his temper got the best of him. Not that it justifies it, but I wanted to believe it was an accident, you know, just a, a an interaction that went wrong. Um, I didn't want to see the truth. And really, here I am all these years later coming to grips with the fact that No, it was not an accident. He murdered his wife. 
I have so much sympathy for that kind of fighting to explain it because and we will touch a bit more on domestic violence and the way that we look at domestic violence and domestic homicide in a moment, but we are very much sold that through popular culture, through the way that victims are treated, that yeah. it will always have been a moment of madness or an accident or she asked for it and all of that. So, yeah, we've been groomed. Women have been groomed into thinking that something must have happened that explains why he killed her. Yes. Actually, let's talk about that now because you've mentioned at the top that the Girlfriends is made in collaboration with domestic and sexual violence charity No More. And in the UK, it's changing, albeit very, very slowly, but the treatment of domestic homicide by the justice system and the media remains pretty fucking appalling. I think every woman knows that if she is killed by a partner or ex-partner, there are probably going to be headlines suggesting it was somehow her fault or she was somehow played a part in the blame. What are the attitudes towards domestic violence and domestic homicide like in the US? Is it similar? Oh, it's totally similar. I mean, I, I think we all share that. You know, it's always, a well, what did that woman do? She must have done something wrong. Why doesn't she leave? You know, uh, during this journey and no more, uh, which women need to reach out if they're experiencing any kind of problems. They have lots of free services and it's no more.org, by the way. They have really educated me that it takes, on an average, seven times for a woman to leave a bad situation where they're being abused. Huh. Seven times. So can you imagine the pain and suffering? And then we look at women, and I have, I'll, I'll say for sure, well, why don't you just leave? What the heck? Well, it's a complicated issue. And it's not fair to make judgment of these women that feel... Um, alone and ashamed and, and powerless in their situation. There's lots of reasons why women stay. Yeah. And I've learned that through No More. And we have to normalize this conversation. And we have to do a better job understanding so that we can help women who are in this situation. I have spent my entire career, Mickey, in, in working on social impact issues. I worked in mental health, behavioral health care, Early on in my career, and today I work for a wonderful firm, Hellsperian in D.C., where we work on social impact issues, and I spend time now in end-of-life care helping people die well. But right now, I am just committed to making sure that women understand that they're not alone, they're not abnormal. If they find themselves in a situation of domestic violence, please know that we are all here for you. And let's all join together as a, a larger sisterhood to not judge women because there's lots of reasons why they stay. And I get Gail today. I understand she was trying to leave, but she wasn't up to her seven tries to get out of there. And she was early on in that journey. And so uh, she had many reasons why she didn't leave right away. Yeah. And also a controlling man like that is uh, is most dangerous after you've left. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the statistics are amazing. One in three women experience domestic violence in their lifetime. That's a lot of women. And this isn't just a women's issue. Men, one in seven men, uh, no more reports on that. Um, and I certainly don't want to bash men. Look, there's many great men out there. Of course. But yeah. there are some really shitty men out there who believe that they can control and dominate and that it's okay. And it's not okay. Too right, it's not okay. You mentioned there the solidarity of women coming together, and that is a, a big theme in The Girlfriends. 
So you and your friend started to talk around what had been happening with Bob at the time. When and how did you start to join the dots? Well, I have a one girlfriend, Mindy Shapiro, who I'm sure you've heard in the episodes, who just loves a good detective story. And, and she found herself, um, you know, we didn't have some of the technology we have today. So she's in the library researching and getting every piece of information she could once I had shared the story with her. And that became her cause and purpose. You know, that became Mindy's commitment to seeing that justice was served. And she brought all of us along for the ride. I wanted to get on with life and pretend none of this ever happened to me. Um, You know, I wanted to live in my denial. But I'm so... um, proud of where we went with this. We came together to to help solve this murder. And uh, we did a, a, a damn good job at it, by the way. But you uh, coming it. together. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I wondered how you felt in 2020. Bob Berenbaum, having been in jail for 20 years, finally admits that, yes, he murdered his wife, Gail, and threw her body out of a plane. So I don't want to spoil the episode because um, we, we do go into details about that. But can I just tell you that his admission of guilt is really, to me, disgusting. Um, There's no apology to the family. There's no recognition of wrongdoing. It's as if he's the freaking victim. And um, that man should rot in prison for the rest of his life. You know, he's up for parole. It hasn't happened yet, but you'll learn that in New York, you have to admit guilt in order to get released. So isn't it convenient now that he's admitting? And this is a very dangerous man who should never, ever be released from prison. Listeners, I can't recommend The Girlfriends enough, and it's really beautifully put together as well. And I am a little bit kind of eye roll at some true crime because it does tend to make it quite salacious and not always centre the victim. But this is really respectful as well as full of like very interesting and important information. So well done, Carol. It's excellent. Oh, thank you so much. Look, it's important that we always keep some humor going in our lives because life is hard. So (laughs) there is humor mixed in here, but this is a serious issue. We take it seriously. Anna Sinfield took it seriously. Her team took it seriously. And um, it was a privilege to me to be the host of the podcast. It's been an amazing journey. And um, I hope lots of people listen and learn and know that they're not alone if they find themselves in a domestic violence situation. There is one more question I wanted to ask you that isn't related to Bob or Gail, or guess maybe sort of tangentially to Gail. And that is another thing that really struck me while listening to your podcast was the pressures, the enormous pressures on Jewish daughters, particularly this thing of a Jewish girl has to marry a doctor. It's a theme that comes up time and time again and aided Bob in controlling so many women. Well... Gosh, we could do a whole podcast. Maybe we should come back one <laughs> day should. and just talk about Jewish mothers, right? And I'm a Jewish mom, so I get it, okay? You know, I think generations uh, prior to me, many women were in the home. That was their primary role. They're caring for their children, caring for their home, and they wanted to make sure that their daughters were well taken care of. And um, that's that's what it was like for me and for Gail being raised by a Jewish mother. Good intentions very good intentions of the Jewish moms, but very much committed to making sure that we married one of our own, that we kept the culture and beliefs alive, and that we were taken care of. 
And I'd like to think today that my Jewish mothering, while I'm, I can hover and I'm very protective <laughs> of my daughter, that I want her to be fiercely independent and not have to rely on a man to take care of her. But that's a newer, a newer generation and a newer way of looking at things. So, you know, I applaud Jewish mothers. They love their children, but uh, there, there may have been some guilt along the way that, you know, if you didn't marry the Jewish man and Jewish doctors were like a dream come true, then there was something wrong with you. And um, I'm here to say that's not true. <laughs> There's life without a Jewish doctor and a, a good life without a Jewish doctor. Definitely. So The Girlfriends is produced by Novel and available wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to this one now. You can get it wherever you got this one. Carol, thank you so, so much for chatting with me. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm so glad that I, I wasn't edited. I can say bad words and uh, I don't have to do a trigger warning. So thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Thank you. And I applaud the work you're doing. It's just tremendous promoting women and, and for women and by women. So thank you. You play ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny Off The Blocks, that time of the week where we pivot past the patriarchy as we discuss all things women's sports. Let's quickly chat about the Football World Cup. I'm not going to say too much because I'm recording this on Monday and by the time you hear this there will probably be at least two days of action to catch up on. A couple of talking points. A disappointing start for England. They beat Haiti 1-0 thanks to a 29th minute penalty by Georgia Stanway after a bit of hoo-ha in which Stanway's first attempt was caught but the keeper was off her line. That all followed a handball by Bacheba Lewis for Haiti. So they were lucky, basically. We were disjointed and rusty and that is not a scoreline I would have predicted prior to this match. Maybe it's too much pressure. Maybe this is why we can't have nice things in this country. Another shocking result. Jamaica held on for a nil-nil draw against France. I probably don't need to tell you, but in case I do, France are pretty good and Jamaica are not widely thought of as a great footballing nation. Congratulations to them. Not all good news, though, as Khadija Shaw will miss the next match, having been handed a red card in the 92nd minute. A huge statement of intent by the German women's side on Monday as they put six goals past Morocco. Alexandra Pop scored two of those. A strong start, but the tournament is young. OK, let's move on to another World Cup which gets underway this week, and that is the Netball World Cup. It starts in Cape Town on Friday. There are a massive 60 matches scheduled across 10 days, finishing on August the 10th. The action starts daily at 8am and you can watch it on Sky Sports and with one game per day broadcast on Sky Sports' YouTube channel. So there are opportunities to watch even if you don't have a premium subscription. The BBC will also be showing the tournament from the second stage, which begins on July the 31st. There's a bit more to get excited about if you're Scottish or Welsh than there is with the Football World Cup, with both home nations taking part alongside England. And England and Scotland will face off in Pool B, along with Malawi and Barbados. Australia, Tonga, Zimbabwe and Fiji make up Pool A. Jamaica, South Africa, Wales and Sri Lanka compete in Pool C. That's a tough group for Wales. And Pool D comprises of New Zealand, Uganda, Trinidad and Tobago and Singapore. The top three teams from each pool progress to the knockout stages. I have to say the second stage 
gets a little bit complicated. On Friday the 28th, England will face Barbados, while Malawi plays Scotland, both of which are at 7pm. That's after Wales face host nation South Africa at 5pm. In terms of who's in with the shot, no pun intended, Australia are the reigning champions with New Zealand finishing second and England third in the last World Cup. They are still the top three in that order in the world rankings. Jamaica and South Africa are both pretty decent as well. So watch this space for more information on how that's going. Okay, that's not all because the Tour de France Femme is also underway. That started yesterday as I record on Monday and you can watch it on Eurosport and Discovery+. Plus. Great Britain's Anna Henderson finished the first stage in 20th with compatriot Pfeiffer Georgie in 25th and Claire Steeles in 27th. They are all Brits but also on different teams. As ever, it's the Dutch riders dominating with Lorena Viebs, Charlotte Kuhl, Marianne Vos and Demi Vollering all in the top 10. Again, all different teams except Viebs and Vollering who have given Team SD Works a great start alongside first place Lottie Kopecki of Germany. Stage two is now underway as I record, but the race finishes on July 30th. So there's plenty more to see over the coming days. What an excellent few weeks of sport. That's all for me this week and I'll be back next time with more women's sport. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Jen, what steaming pile of horseshit did we watch this week? And why was I so strangely invested? Unbelievable. Well, (laughs) this week we watched 1978's International Velvet. Technically, it's a sequel to the 1944 film National Velvet, which catapulted then 12-year-old Elizabeth Taylor, who played heroine Velvet Brown, to fame. But I think this is more of a kind of reboot. I don't think they would have said reboot in 1978, but that's how it feels to me. Do you mean cash cow? (laughs) Cash horse, surely. Uh, Well, I don't think it was a cash cow (laughs) or a cash horse, but we'll get to that. It was written, directed and produced by Brian Forbes. Forbes cast his wife, Nanette Newman, a.k.a. the fairy liquid lady, as grown-up Velvet. In fact, it is one of nine films she appeared in which he directed. And for her turn as Velvet, she took home the Evening Standard Film Award for Best Actress. Wowzers. Brian Forbes, BTW, is mm-hmm. amongst sort of film critics type of thing. Unbelievably well-respected, like massively well-respected director. He's actually in this as well, and he's brilliant in it. Is he's he? the announcer, and I think he's incredibly what, one good of the in this. commentary team? He's the one that introduces her, the one that says, it happens to us all eventually, about when the horses <laughs> are going so out to start. And then later he's in the commentary box when they're in Montreal. I thought the commentary team were brilliant as someone who hangs out with commentators a little bit. I was like, that voice is banging. He's fantastic. The film also stars a young Tatum O'Neill as our rebooted heroine, Sarah, who's Velvet's niece. At 15 years old, playing an 18-year-old, I suppose she sort of plays her over a number of years, but she'd already won an Academy Award for her role in Paper Moon, which made her the youngest person ever to receive an Oscar at the age of 10. Unfortunately, her career trajectory did not follow the same path, as is sadly often the case with child stars. Christopher Dad Von Trapp Plummer stars as Velvet's <laughs> partner John. And Anthony Hopkins, yes, Anthony Hopkins. I loved Anthony Hopkins in this so much. Stars. <laughs> he was great. Was it Anthony Hopkins or was it Mark Heap playing Anthony Hopkins? <laughs> Shh, don't spoil it for people, Hannah. <laughs> he stars as Olympic equestrian coach Captain Johnson. 
Let's have a quick canter through the plot, pun very much intended. Sarah is the orphan daughter of Velvet Brown's brother Donald, who, having at some point relocated to Arizona, has died in a car crash with his wife, leaving Sarah in the care of Aunt Velvet and her partner John over in Blighty. He's a struggling writer plagued by writer's block. Sarah is, understandably, a bit fucked off with the whole thing, and certainly not helped by some twat called Alan who pretends to have a dead GI's finger in a tin, then later pretends to light horses to try and get in her pants. Now, I am fucking with the timeline a little bit here, but there are other twats, like the boys who try to run her over and die when their car crashes. I would say they are the worst twats. (laughs) For which she mustn't feel guilty, says Alan. No, you really mustn't. What the fuck? You mustn't blame yourself. You know you fucking mustn't. No, absolutely. It's the only sensible thing Alan says. Why is that even in there? It's like literally serves no purpose whatsoever. It's the strangest like deathly interlude. It's basically in look and quality an extended public service advert about <laughs> overtaking horses that's been like covertly shoved into the middle of that Do you think film? they also filmed one where a kite got stuck with a pylon? <laughs> As you know, I used to ride horses and they will kick off about literally anything. But they're scared of plastic bags, mate. But being chased by a mini... I mean, I know. I, I drove very carefully past some horses just yesterday. Anyway. <laughs> well done, Jeff. Thanks, mate. Thanks, mate. A velvet, in case y'all didn't know, she loves horses. In fact, as a ute, she illegally took part in the Grand National before women were allowed to compete and she won on a horse called the Pie but she wasn't allowed to win because women yeah <sighs> the Pie is still knocking around some 30 years later which actually wouldn't be that weird for a healthy and well looked after horse and he's about to knock up his last pedigree horse love match breeding match in a bid to make Sarah feel at home Velvet and John buy her the foal Arizona Pie then complain about having no money, which means John has to write some old shite to put her through horse school when she's scouted by angry Captain Johnson to join the British Olympics team. Off she pops to America, where she can't ride because tragedy unfolds on the plane when a horse is put down. But she learns some valuable lessons. Then she goes to the Olympics. There are lots of horses, maybe too many horses. And she wins the end. Okay, I was a bit disappointed by the lack of dancing horses, to be honest, because in recent years, dressage has had like a bit of a bad rap in terms of an Olympic sport. But I remember dressage as being like what it is like in this film. And I think that dressage is a lot better for the modern spin on it, personally. Mick, I know you agree with me. Uh, Yeah, I quite like modern dressage. I used to really like watching all of the horsey Olympics uh, or that, that bit of the Olympics, because obviously, as you guys know, and as the listeners know, big Jilly Cooper fan and International Velvet is basically Jilly Cooper, but without any of the sex, fun, yeah. comedy or decent writing. So I felt right at home, <laughs> if a little bored and confused some of the time. But yeah, the horses also, it was always muddy. Whenever they were trying to dressage, they were like, oh, we've had a lot of rain tonight. I was... Pleased with the level of dressage. Dressage is not my thing. At least I would say that the cross country was dramatically exciting. In it fact, was. it reminded me of the, my favourite thing that happens on horses, even more so than gambling. That thing in the pentathlon where they make them get on a horse they've never met before, and all the horses yeah. are like, "Now nah, fuck off," and like throwing them off and stuff. Yeah. yeah. 
So I can't find out how much the budget for the film was, but it made around $7 million at the box office. In terms of critical reception, Variety called it an extremely fine film at the time of its release, while the New York Times was rather less complimentary. While it praised the performances of O'Neill and Hopkins, its review said that the film exploits without shame, wit or subtlety our sympathy for misunderstood children, for animals, for pluck, progress, perseverance and especially for Against All Odds success. It has a 72% approval rating on Rotten Tomatoes, which I have to say is a little bit higher than I expected, if I'm honest. 70% higher than I expected, if I'm honest. That said, (laughs) I have watched this film quite a few times. As someone who used to ride horses as a kid, it was of interest to me. I'd also seen the original 1944 film a few times, but I don't really like old films. And uh, (laughs) I thought this was a bit more, I don't know, it's a bit more interesting. Cards on the table. It's got horses, the Olympics, sport. I mean, there is a lot there for me personally to like. And I do have quite a long-standing affection for it purely because of nostalgia. I realise that without much of an interest in any of those things, perhaps this is a harder sell. <laughs> Hannah and Mickey... I don't know that you'd even heard of this film before, had you? I didn't think I'd heard of it, but within seconds of it being on, I realised that I'd seen it. I saw it at Saturday Morning Pictures at Newport Pagnell. And, I mean, it goes on for like two hours. So well done, my mum. She got a lot achieved in the time <laughs> that she shoved us in there and made us sit through this. And I remember Charlotte liking it, but Charlotte liked horses. Clearly, it just evaporated from my memory uh, until I started watching it again. I think you'll be surprised, Jen, to discover that I absolutely fucking loved it, but not in the way that <laughs> I be it was meant to be loved. It's genuinely really funny in all sorts of ways. It's got an incredible my performance by Anthony oh, Hopkins. It, it, he's literally brilliant in it. I don't know if it's meant to be funny, but it's hilariously funny. funny. He's got really funny I lines. Think he's tongue in cheek, isn't yeah. he? He's quite like he's dry. Yeah. It's got a number of throwaway lines in it that made me absolutely piss myself laughing. It's got two pilots chatting about Match of the Day for no apparent I was like, why is this in here? This film is two hours long. Surely they could have edited that bit out. In social history terms, it is absolute gold. I haven't seen it before. And I'm going to be honest with you, I was okay with that. And not knowing about it. I have seen National Velvet, but I don't really remember very much about it. And as previously mentioned, big Jilly Cooper fan. So I was like, oh, I'm quite interested going into it. And as soon as Anthony Hopkins came in, that character just made me be like, oh, no, this is worth sticking around for. He is so funny, so dry. His performance is so interesting. I thought the commentators were hilarious. They've absolutely got the tone down. But there was a bit where they're doing the horse jumping and he's just going, oh, yes, jumped over that jump and he's over that one, popped over the other. <laughs> and you're like, that isn't describing anything. So, no, a bit like Hannah, I ended up finding it utterly hilarious in a way that I don't think was intended and I also learned something about depression and that is to continuously ask someone if they are depressed and then just tell them to stop it don't be depressed and apparently that works I think Christopher Plummer is actually again that's a remarkably well done performance he's got all the dad jokes going on it's it's great. I he's think he's really super likeable. charming. Yeah, he's super charming in this. He does have one of those hilarious three lines, though. His one is, while he's having a conversation with her about boys, just to be clear, he says, I never had any boys. <laughs> he just says 
that's it. Like, apropos of fucking nothing. Like, we know. You live with Nanette Newman. We know. You're not into boys. There's a bit where she first runs away and the cop says, oh, this was and he's thanking him. And the cop says, oh, to be honest, it's a relief to get him home back so quickly. And alive. That, I he absolutely wet myself. End. And alive was such an afterthought. What do you think about Tatum O'Neill? Because I'm not sure I agree that she gave a fine performance. She has to straddle a big old age gap, right? Mm. From, because not necessarily in the number of years, but in how much we change from the age of like 12, is she, when they first get her to 18? Because Alan goes from being a boy to being a 40-year-old man, <laughs> right? But anyway, she has to go from playing really young to playing 18. And she doesn't look any different at any point. So when she starts having like relationships or sexual interest in it, it's really fucking creepy because she still looks mm. so, so young. But also, but when she's young and she's walking holding hands with an inept human to school, it looks really silly as well. When she's like carrying around a teddy bear, you're like, this girl does mm. not look 10 or whatever. Yeah. There's a brilliant line where she meets Scott from the American team and he goes, hey, your accent. And uh, she goes, oh, yeah, I was born in America. And he goes, you've kept your accent. And I'm like, she fucking hasn't. She never had an American accent. It's no. crackers. She sounds so British. I think like she wouldn't have retained much of an accent, probably, would she? She claims to, to Scott Saunders. Yeah. So, you know. Kids generally lose their accent quite quickly in an attempt to fit in. But, I mean, she wasn't making much of an effort, was she? Which is why they tried to run her over. So, uh, you she know. She mustn't blame herself. I was so angry at the screen. That whole scene made me feel so sick and so uneasy, yeah. as Hannah yeah. described it, like a public service film. But, yeah, also, the horses doing the steeplechase across country, that also made me feel really weird, because I'm just like, oh, mm. It's so nerve-wracking that horses are so amazing and so fragile at the same time. Yes. Yeah. yeah, I felt sick. And I'm like, and they showed so much of it. Yeah. We lose a lot of the horses in this, which is all quite distressing. I mean, I don't, obviously, you two both probably know more than me, so it might be a me thing rather than a plot fault thing. But you have a really well-performing horse, you put him out to stud. And you put him out to stud for stud mm-hmm. fees and people pay a lot of money so that they can have a horse that, that claims this parentage. Sirage. Right. Yeah. Okay. So how can it be that Pi has sired a pony, right, by a farmer who's prepared to sell him for coppers in a box? Yeah, I feel that is a plot hole. It is because also as the owner of Pi, she would have stood to gain financially from that right so just give the farmer his money back well the farmer is probably not just a farmer he's probably a breeder or something i guess but if you had a horse like pie who is wanted to breed Mm. other horses from you wouldn't just be like yeah knock yourself out well you would have a fee for it how could the result be that a child earning 20 pence an hour which i have to say gave me a right nostalgia trip because i just kept thinking about you know sometimes sometimes my dad would offer to pay us to do jobs if we were helping him and that was kind of the level 20p an hour i was like oh that sounds really familiar i think the farmer was just letting her down gently hannah i don't think he ever had any intentions to sell the foal to a child if i'm honest with you i think he was like he'd gone to oh yeah if you save up Mm. enough money and then she'd gone and obviously foal had already been sold and he was like oh such a shame because yeah you've worked so hard and he was you know okay got Mm. you Right. I don't think he was going to accept £2.40. Yeah, well, there was, there was definitely a pound note in there. Yeah, definitely, I saw that. £3.40, sorry, my bad. 
I wanted to ask, because I think this film probably thinks it is progressive in some ways. And of course, like National Velvet was about a woman competing in a race that she shouldn't have been competing in and she wins it and blah, blah, blah. I wonder what you thought about it, because... I think I did think it was quite progressive when I watched it as a kid. But there's an awful lot of maternal angst in it that obviously I did not pick up on at the time. There's a scene where they've had that row and she slapped her and then they're walking back from the field together where Lynette Newman basically says to her, like, and I'm paraphrasing, I slapped you because I was really scared because I love you and I need you. That's a really fucking weird message to be putting in a film for children, personally, I think. It's a bit coercive controlling to a modern eye, obviously. It probably was just parenting in the 1970s, so it's absolutely not progressive, I don't think. It also makes a very, really, really heavy-handed point about the fact that these two aren't married. But then you find out that they're not married because Christopher Plummer's scared of scared of marriage. <laughs> so... I mean, yeah, that still puts her, a woman, in a, a position of less power. If I don't know why that had to be the point of that. Why it couldn't be just like, yeah, fuck it, we decided not to get married. Like, he does say that, but I do think it comes across like they're just, they're not married and that works for them and that's fine. I do think it kind of comes across that she is also fine with it and not in a rush to get married. But as Hannah says, they do state that it's him who's got the fear which undermines feel the, unnecessary. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it's progressive. And, you know, I guess with eventing, eventing was, as as they say in the commentary, one of the the only Olympic sport where men and women compete equally. So it's it's not like with National Velvet where she's had to sneak in to, to you know, to mm. pretend that she's a, a, a boy or a man to get into the race. This is fine. And it actually struck me that they absolutely couldn't have two women in the final team. It was three men and just International Velvet, just Tatum O'Neill's character. The other woman got... I mean, it was a bit fucking long, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, I stopped halfway through. Despite the fact that I said I loved it, I stopped halfway through to do the washing up. And I did wonder whether that was because the film was too long or the subliminal messaging from Lynette Newman. I was just like, I've got to go and get it done. Hannah, can I just ask you, are your hands as soft as your face? <laughs> I did sort of think it was a bit like the reverse of the Elvis song. A little more conversation, a little less action, please. There was a lot of horse filler in it, I thought. There was a lot of conversation filler in Yeah, it. I didn't want more conversation, though, Jen. <laughs> yeah, we need those pilots basically going, yeah, what did you do last night then, Bob? Yeah. Well, not conversation, but I mean plot. I think... They kept in too much filler where they could have had maybe a bit more plot. Or just less, like half an hour less, maybe. A lot a lot tighter edit, and I don't think you would have lost anything that you learned from it. If they'd cut any more of Anthony Hopkins, though, I'd have been furious, because the best thing in it, yeah. by a country mile. Absolutely. Oh, I loved him so much. When he just said, but, you know, sorrow doesn't win medals, otherwise I'd be a three-time gold medal winner. Yeah. <laughs> just, his lines were amazing. Yeah. I also thought it was... Weird. I mean, like I say, obviously Brian Forbes hugely respected, but I think he makes some really, really weird choices about how this is filmed. Everything is really far away, really far away. Everything's shot from a distance, including like, you know, the horse action. And at one point, loads of the horse action is obscured by this flag that just keeps flapping across the camera and you can't see loads of it. And there's another bit where they're watching it on the telly at home and most of the shot is filled with sofa. It's really weird. It feels 
really impersonal and a lot of that I think is to do with how it's shot you're not engaged you're not close up on them I mean obviously it must have been a much cheaper film because if they were making that now you'd be on the fucking horse with her with a camera wouldn't you yeah totally. but I was thinking about that because I because I couldn't find the budget anywhere I was looking for it because I thought all of the the horse stuff that probably was quite expensive right I did notice that a lot of the horse riders and so therefore the horses were Olympic horses because when the cast list came up at the end on the credits, it had in brackets when they were from the USA for sure, but definitely. I think that was the only one they had in brackets, but I was like, oh, they were clearly, you know, equestrians. I've been to that stadium. Just Have FYI, you? Montreal, yeah. Not right. inside it, obviously. I, I stood outside it. Had a tulip festival going on. It was quite lovely. Well, I don't think I need to ask this question, but I will for the sake of... Uh... <laughs> dated yeah it's massively dated but i'm still fond of it it doesn't mean i didn't have a lovely time or be a very long time watching it right who's next then it's me and i'm not sure that i can promise you a lovely time because we are watching 1998 there's something about mary oh god never seen that i'm sorry that's <laughs> how i'm gonna end this Standard issue for all women.